Open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, verse 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. In the book of Acts, we have an amazing story about some of the key things that the Lord Jesus did in and through the Holy Spirit and in and through His capital C church. It wasn't First Baptist Church or First Presbyterian Church. It was the group of all born-again believers being used by God to spin the gospel out of Jerusalem all the way to Rome in the first 30 years of the church. And as we read that story in the book of Acts, and we see that progression, we also see the book of Acts teaches or illustrates a lot of really important principles that apply just as much to uh, Jack Mitchell or Bill Fisher or Nancy Postlewaite as those principles applied to uh, Peter, James, and John. And last week, we saw a really nice example of that in Acts 15, verses 30 through 31, in the middle of a narrative about Paul organizing his second missionary journey, we saw some principles about how believers can and should disagree with one another. It's okay for us to disagree, but we have to fight fair when we do. And we saw three principles. Paul and Barnabas, who had a different difference of opinion about whether or not Mark should go on this missionary trip, Paul and Barnabas talked directly to one another about that issue. And a lot of times, Christians, including myself, if I get crossways with Mimi, a lot of times I want to talk to Scott and Kyleen and Carla about uh, Mimi's issues so we can pray about it. But that doesn't do much good, does it? Paul and Barnabas didn't go their separate ways and ask people to pray for their counterpart. They talked to each other about the issue. Is Mark ready for this or is he not? Second thing we saw, Paul and Barnabas agreed to disagree. Barnabas was sure Mark was good to go. Paul was sure he wasn't ready yet, so they agreed to disagree, and then they both acted consistently with their own convictions, meaning Barnabas took Mark on a different direction, different mission trip, whereas Paul left with Silas without Mark. So they talked about the issue directly, they agreed to disagree, and they continued to serve the Lord and the church without bitterness, grudges, or cliques. We saw that last week in the middle of a narrative about the uh, planning of the first missionary journey. Now today, we move to chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, and in the middle of a narrative about the very first phases of Paul's first missionary journey, we're going to see a wonderful example of Christian liberty. Sometimes I call it spiritual liberty, and those terms are interchangeable for me. We're going to see a great illustration of how Christian liberty should work. I'm going to sum it up this way. Uh, Within the bounds of the clear moral and doctrinal teachings of God's Word, we have all kinds of freedom to be ourselves. Uh, It's not about obeying rules. It's about a relationship with a ruler who's first our Savior and getting as close to Him as possible, even though I might decide it's okay for our family to have a Christmas tree. And Daryl may, in good conscience, feel like, Now, there were some pagan elements attached to 
Christmas trees 500 years ago that nobody remembers, but in his mind, that's so important, he can't have a Christmas tree. You know, within the bounds of Scripture, there's no verse where it says, Thou shalt not have a Christmas tree. Or thou shalt have a Christmas tree. Within the bounds of the clear moral teaching of Scripture, we have the right to paint our own painting to God, and we're going to disagree on some of the things we do or don't do within that frame. And so, within that context, I'm going to say, hey, let's love, let's celebrate the liberty we have in Christ, but at, at times, in love, we will need to limit it to avoid needless offense in certain contexts. So that's what we're going to look at today in Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. But let's, uh, before we get started on the teaching portion, let's pray for <clears throat> our teachability to God's Word, our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters, as is our custom. So, uh, David Stribling, pray in that direction for us, would you? Thanks, David. Uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, you know, a lot of times right after the prayer, I'll do a top seven list of trying to be funny, trying to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. And uh, this week, I thought I was going to do one on Donald Trump's hair. I was going to do one on Donald Trump's hair. And I've got some really funny jokes about Donald Trump's hair. Um, like, what's the difference between Donald Trump's hair and the tooth fairy? Uh, the answer is, some people believe the tooth fairy is real. So, you know, I've got this, I've got this list of jokes here I was going to read. And then I looked at those pictures, and I looked in the mirror... And, you know, I realized that in a strong wind, my hair looks worse than that. And so I confessed in, in dust and ashes I should not have tried to do that. So you're just going to have to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking your own self today. Okay? Let's read uh, our verses today. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. Early phases of the second missionary journey. Uh, Paul... And Silas came also to the city called Derby. We saw that city in the first missionary journey. And to Lystra, which is where Paul was stoned and left for dead on the side of the road. And a disciple was there, probably a young man who came to faith during Paul's first missionary journey a couple years before this, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but Timothy's father was a Greek and not a believer. And he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren, by the Christians in Lystra and also down the road in Iconium. So Timothy's been a believer for a while. He's got a nice, uh, uh, nice credibility, well known among the Christian community. Verse 3, Paul wanted this young man. Paul's not against young men like Mark. He wants a young guy like Timothy to be one of the team members. He just wasn't sure Mark was ready, but he's quite sure Timothy's ready. So Paul wanted this man, Timothy, of Lystra, to go with him on the trip, on the rest of the mission trip. And he took him and circumcised him, Jewish ritual circumcision, because of, and the Greek text means, out of consideration for Jewish folks, believers and unbelievers they would interact with who were in those parts, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities that they had visited, Paul had visited during the first missionary journey, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. What's that? Remember back in chapter 15, there was a big issue. Can Gentiles believe in Jesus and be saved? Or, since Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, don't Gentiles have to become Jews first and then believe in the Jewish Messiah and get saved? And Paul had been saying, and Peter had been saying, 
uh, that no, God made it clear that Jesus wasn't just the Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. And everyone who believes in him received forgiveness of sins. So we had that big meeting in Jerusalem where the apostles and the leaders of the church got together and said, yes, of course, salvation is by grace through faith for everyone who believes. There's no pre-qualification. You don't have to become a Jew or a Baptist or a Catholic before you can believe and get saved. So Paul's reading that those decrees that were written down to these churches he had visited who had been influenced by that. You're either not saved or second class if you're a Gentile. So he began delivering the decrees in these Gentile cities which had been decided upon to be written down by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and increasing in number daily. So these are real places and real events. Uh, of course, the events of the life of Christ took place in Israel, right? But you go about 200 miles north and you're in Syria, Antioch of Syria. That's the church that sends all the missionary journeys out. And second missionary journey, Paul and Silas go overland past Paul's hometown into the cities of the Galatians. Uh, we went uh, to the Menis order the first time, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, but this time he's coming from east to west, so he's going through them in a different order. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and these events are taking place there that we're talking about. But I want you to see what's happening here, because we want to focus on this very uh, explicitly this morning. During the early phases of this second missionary journey, Paul and Silas add Timothy of Lystra. Where's Lystra? Right there, right? To the team. So we've got a three-man team now. But, because Timothy's mother's Jewish, so Timothy's half-Jewish, and to avoid needless insult to Jewish believers they're going to fellowship with and Jewish unbelievers are going to try to share the gospel with on this trip, even though the ritual of circumcision has nothing to do with salvation, Paul insisted that Timothy be circumcised. Now, here's the question. Why? I mean, they just hammered this issue out. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 1, the issue was phrased this way. Acts 15, 1, that was bubbling up in the church. Some men came down from Judea, from Judea uh, to Antioch Bible Fellowship, began teaching the Gentile believers, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And Paul said, no, that's not right. Gentiles can believe and be saved like Jews can be, Jews can be saved. But now uh, he picks this guy up and he thinks he's going to be a good helper on the missionary journey. And the first thing he does is insist he gets circumcised. Why do he do that? Why would Paul, who's always so clear and so firm about the fact that good works aren't the cause of salvation, good works aren't the root of salvation, they're the fruit of salvation, but they're not the root of salvation, uh, including things like circumcision or water baptism, none of those contribute to our salvation. So why would Paul insist Timothy submit to this thing? Uh, I'd say the answer is because even though he knew, and now everybody in the church knows, ritual circumcision had nothing to do with anybody's salvation theologically. Pragmatically, it will help them deal with Jewish unbelievers and believers along the trip who are going to be offended if a half-Jewish guy hasn't submitted to the ritual. And so... Let me read I. Harrod Marshall's comments, which I think are very succinct. He's a commentator that James knows almost personally because he's interacted with his stuff so much lately. Sorry. Here's what I. Harrod Marshall says. It's really marvelous that 
so soon after Paul's hot indignation over the Judaizers in Antioch, who said, unless you circumcise Gentiles, they can't believe and be saved, and also his arguments against circumcision for salvation in the letter we now call Galatians, that he would be prepared to circumcise Timothy. Some see a problem here, but there's a deep consistency in Paul's thought and action. Once the principle had been established clearly that circumcision, baptism, catechism, ordination, dedication, denomination uh, was not necessary for salvation, Paul was ready to make concessions in policy. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance by some other human beings in the church. And then he goes on to say, while salvation is an issue of Christian truth, fellowship across the wide divide today of denominations, etc., is an issue of Christian love. It was one thing to secure the gospel from corruption. You can't add circumcision or rituals to the gospel. It was another to preserve the church from fragmentation. Paul was resolutely unwilling to compromise the truth of the gospel, uh, which is why he resisted the Judaizers and wrote passionately to the Galatians. At the same time, Paul was extremely anxious to maintain Jewish-Christian solidarity within the one body of Christ. So how could he unite the church without compromising the gospel or defend the integrity of the gospel without sacrificing the unity of the church. His answer was this. Once the theological principle was firmly established that salvation is by grace alone and circumcision was not required, now we could make concessions in policy, meaning we could be flexible with people issues so to avoid needless offense. So here's my bottom line before we divide this, uh, decisive, uh, kind of dissect it closely. Paul's actions here, and also Timothy is submitting to this, right, Mary? He's submitting to male circumcision, are consistent with the principles of spiritual liberty or Christian liberty that will be later written down in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Today I'm going to brief you on these things. And let me tell you what, I didn't even know about the principles of Christian liberty until I'd been a Christian. I was saved at age nine. I think the first time I heard this was maybe a year before I went to seminary, which was 25. So what's nine from 24? I can't do math in front of people, but tell me, it's more than three or four. It's several years. And, you know, I grew up in a, a, a good Southern Baptist culture that told us you can't mow your yard on Sunday. I mean, really. Uh, and uh, the other one I want to stress here, if I can remember what it was, I'm trying to, yeah, uh, of playing card games with real cards. The real cards, you know, have jokers and jacks and kings and queens. Now, you can play with fish cards with little cartoons on it, but playing you know, card games with real cards was a sin. That's the kind of stuff we heard. And when I got older, I realized, you know what? There's no verse that says, thou shalt not cut your grass on Sunday. The Old Testament Jewish folks were under a Saturday Sabbath, and there were real important reasons for that. But you notice we're not sacrificing animals on this side of the cross and we're worshiping not on Saturday, but on Sunday. Why? Something must have really incredible happened to totally change that paradigm. Yeah, what the Old Testament had promised about a uh, Savior that would come has been provided, and we're not living with training wheels on our spirituality. The training wheels have been taken off. We look at back at Christ who came, died, resurrected, and now we live to glorify Him, but we're not under the law. And we're certainly not under 
um, any kind of moral obligation not to cut your grass on Sundays, unless, here's my opinion as a pastor, if you're at home right now cutting your grass between 9.30 and noon on Sundays, that probably is a sin for you because you ought to be here at church. But, you know, after lunch, yeah, I think it's okay. That's my opinion, and that's my considered opinion. So here's my bottom line. Paul and Timothy's actions here, submitting the ritual circumcision so as not to cause needless offense for people in the church who didn't understand Christian liberty or the unsaved Jews. And by the way, how would they know? There was a, there, all the cities had public baths for men. It was disgusting. It was about 18 inches deep. And every day you went to the public bath and people noticed stuff like that back then. You know, which is, I'm just let you know, okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. It's probably good because it won't traumatize you too much. But, uh, in the context later, when Paul talks about this in a different book, 1 Corinthians, he says, all kinds of things are permissible. Does that mean murder is permissible for a Christian? I mean, robbing a bank, is that permissible? No. He's saying within the frame of the clear moral teaching of Scripture, all kinds of things are permissible. You're making kind of good, better, and best choices, but it's all okay. But not all things are profitable. We've got liberty we can enjoy. We can be ourselves, paint God a picture, as it were, with the paints he's given us. And he's given Carla more paints than he's given Brad. He's given James a lot more uh, paints than he's given probably any other minister in Duncan. I mean, I'm serious about that. James is a very gifted guy. I've got one gift, and I've kind of messed it one up, but I'm, I'm limping as best I can, all right? So that's what we're going to kind of see now. Let's talk about this in some detail. Um, you might think, first of all, watch. You might think, I know what the teenagers are thinking. That's, what you just said is great for Paul and Timothy in the first century. I'm glad, I'm glad they knew all that. But hey, we're, hey, Pastor Brad, we're living in the 21st century. So how in the world does that stuff apply to me? Because I've never remembered anybody, uh, walking up to me and saying, hey, do I have to be ritually circumcised before I can believe in Jesus and be saved? Nobody asks you that question today in America. Nobody. Zero percent of the population. So what are we going to do with that? Well, you might think that's nice for Paul and Timothy, but how about us? Well, let me show you why it's important to us. Um, I'm, I've got a list of just random things I picked that, in my opinion, are within the moral bounds of Scripture, but some Christians have seen these and still see these in good conscience as on the don't list. Okay, uh, Some of these, as we read through them quickly, you might say, I can't believe anybody would think that was a bad thing. But trust me... <laughs> In American Christianity, there have been some people. Now, by the way, these kind of issues, I'll read the list in a minute, are really a matter not, since, Lord, since there's no verse that says, thou shalt not cut your grass on Sunday, or thou shalt not celebrate Halloween, or thou shalt not eat food in the church building. I know of churches in town that maybe it's out of respect and reverence, and that's great, and that's their policy, but you can't eat in the church building, Okay. Uh, if that's the church's policy and I attend that church, I'm going to respect that. But I don't think technically it's inherently a sin to eat food in church building. Now, if you're, you know, if you don't bring enough for everyone else, then it's a sin. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, if you like, if you're worried more about donuts than the Word of God, that might be a problem. But uh, we're kind of thinking those donuts aren't donuts; those are ministry facilitators. And uh, hopefully, it keeps you awake. You know, if that, any of that happens, it's great with me. But here's a list of the kind of things Christians either see as okay or terrible, as sinful or illegitimate. Doing, I put yard work on Sundays. Now, Dale works seven days a week. He owns a small business, uh, oil business, 
and he's the man, and he's got to keep those oil wells running. And yet he's always here early for church. He actually works that into his system. A lot of times he dashes straight into the oil field. Usually changes your clothes. Don't you? You don't work in your Sunday clothes at the oil field. But uh, yeah, when I grew up, that was a big no-no. Doing, and I put yard work because I like to. You know, after after a tough Sunday for Pastor Brad, uh, if I'm not interested in the particular teams that are playing, uh, whatever sport the season is, a lot of times in the afternoon, if my grass needs to be cut, I'll I'll cut it. You know. So here's a list: doing work for me, yard work on Sundays, playing card games with real cards. That's a that's a sin. Some people think. Riding in an automobile. Now you got, you know, Henry Ford or whoever invented the car a hundred years ago. We've gotten over that one. But the first generation of Christians, a lot of them said, if God intended us to roll, we would have. He would have given us wheels. So obviously, that's more than we're supposed to be doing. They thought that was sinful. I, I don't find any. You know, I've translated a lot of the Bible in original languages. I don't see anything about "Thou shalt not ride in an automobile." I'm just telling you. So, uh, riding in an airplane. What was the initial? I mean, after the Wright brothers, there was a real scandal. You know, in Alabama and Mississippi, what are we going to do with airplanes? If God had wanted us to fly, what would he have given us? We don't have wings, so don't... And, and, you know, some of those things crash, you know, so obviously God's telling you not to get an airplane. I'd say get in your seatbelt, you know, kind of thing. Parachute jumping, I mean, you know, I don't see why anybody would jump out of a perfectly good plane myself. But, uh, and, you know, didn't one of the... Wasn't, wasn't one of the temptations of Christ, you know? We're in the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself off. You know that the Lord will providentially preserve you, and that'll be good publicity. Jesus is told, I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm not going to tempt God. Um, so I guess parachute jumping for military activities so you can kill bad guys is okay, but doing it for fun isn't. I'm not sure where they draw the line there, but I'm not, I'm not jumping out of a parachute. I'm just telling you. With a parachute. If I jump, I will have a parachute, but I'm not jumping with one. Going to movie theaters, that was considered as sinful. And you know what? I don't go to a lot of movies... Uh, because uh, I need to read exegetical commentaries on Acts and Second Thessalonians so I can feed you high class spirit, you know, high quality spiritual meals. Okay, Mary. But I don't think m- movies are necessarily inherently evil. The medium is neutral. I think some movies probably are evil. I mean, based on their plot, what they do, how they do it, probably not real profitable. But I think rather than us telling you you can't go to any movies because they're inherently evil, let's get real and say that's something you got to make your own decisions on, right? If you want my input, I'm glad to give it to you. Uh, watching movies at home. They used to say, well, you know, you can't go to the theater, but how about DVDs? You can't watch those either, some people say. And, you know, I get that. And by the way, let me stop there. You know, this is an area where Christians could disagree. I, I could see how some Christians would say, you know what? The Hollywood movie industry is so corrupt. Just look at what they say and do on Twitter and Yahoo every day. I don't, even if the movie that they're putting out there is okay as far as content and beautifully photographed, I don't want to put my money to support that industry at all. That's the way I feel. That's my conviction. I totally respect that. And according to Christian liberty, you've got every right to that conviction. You don't have a right to use your conviction that way, however, as a litmus test for everybody else's spirituality. Okay? I think some Christians would say, well, you know what? Uh, and this way I think about it, even though I don't go to that many movies. The only thing the Hollywood movie industry understands is votes. And you, you know how you vote with the Hollywood movie industry? How? With money, right? So if they actually put out a movie that's decent, if I go and buy a ticket, I'm voting for more movies like that. 
And I, I think most Christians probably in this room kind of feel that way, and I get that. But if we've got somebody who's stricter than we are on that, we got to respect that. Of course. That's your conviction. Live it out. But don't use it as a litmus test for everybody else. Uh, bowling, playing pool, buying insurance, going to the doctor, eating food in the church building, listening to music, music with a beat, attending live theater. Romeo, Romeo, where for out thou Romeo? You know, it's considered to be bad. Uh, taking certain medications, celebrating Christmas at all, Christmas trees, uh, real or artificial. Some Christians think those are evil. They won't do it. You know what? As long as you're not telling me that's a direct teaching of Scripture, and that's your conviction, hey, God bless you. I totally get that. Um, have you noticed how expensive these artificial trees are now? I mean, for that reason alone, I probably wouldn't buy one, but uh, I'm cheap, you know? Uh, and that's probably a sin in that context. But um, wearing a toupee, wearing a really bad toupee, I just threw that in to be funny. But um, it didn't work, did it? But um, as I go through this, let me highlight doing yard work on Sundays and playing card games. Uh, my parents were not churchgoers when I was a little kid after I got saved. Uh, and they didn't play a lot of card games, but they played pinochle with my uncle and aunt when uh, they would come visit us once a year. And so I'm going to Sunday school as a 9, 10, 11-year-old kid being told that playing card games with real cards is evil. So I go home and kind of start looking crossways at my parents playing pinochle. You know? That's just what you need. A self-righteous 11-year-old legalist telling two unbelievers, you know, what they should or not be doing. You know, so that didn't help. You know? And I remember distinctly one, uh, one weekend, you know, I was supposed to cut the grass on a Saturday. I think I had baseball games and stuff. And so we went to, ch- my mother dropped me off at church. Um, and when, in that Sunday, they talked about, they were applying the Sabbath principle, which is Old Testament, but, uh, which is Saturday, not Sunday, but they told us that doing any physical labor, uh, on Sundays, including cutting your grass, was evil. And you gotta remember, when I was a little kid, nothing was open on Sundays except the drugstore. There were blue laws because it was understood, saying it was a day of rest and, and, uh, I, I think that was probably a good thing generally, but should the general culture mandate that? I don't know. But yeah, I remember distinctly one one weekend like that uh, where I was supposed to cut the grass. I didn't. Went to church. She picks me up and she says, "As soon as and she doesn't doesn't trying to she's not trying to make me sin. She's just saying, hey, as soon as lunch is over, you need to go cut the grass." And I said, "Hey, mom." And then and she literally said, uh, "Oh, by the way, what did you learn in church today?" I mean, right after that, and I said, "You know, they told us we're not supposed to work on Sundays." <laughs> And, you know, when you're 11 years old, 10, I mean, I wasn't a real rebellious kid, you know. It put me in kind of an existential angst there, you know, that I never quite got over. But now I realize, you know what, um, I don't think there's a verse that says you can't cut your rest on Sundays. Uh, I think there might be, if you've got a legalistic neighbor who's going to question your salvation, you might choose, as a concession for them not to cut it on Sundays. But all of the factors being equal... I think it probably testifies to my neighbors that this guy's got a different conception of spirituality than, than we were told, and maybe there's something to check out. So anyway, those are examples. Can you see those? When you look at that list, you might think, I can't believe any of those could have been offensive to any Christian, but trust me, all of them have been, and probably still are, to certain people. And as long as they understand spiritual liberty and say, I've hammered out my convictions so that I don't do these things, but you can do it if you want to in the Lord, that's fine. But the problem is when you come up with stricter ideas in Scripture and use that to convince yourself you're superior to everybody else and use it to question everybody else's spirituality, maybe even salvation, that's a problem. That doesn't facilitate uh, good things happening in the church. 
Let's talk about the three principles, three P's of spiritual liberty. Uh, number one, it's important to recognize the difference between direct biblical command, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, as opposed to areas of spiritual freedom. Like, uh, is it okay to have a Christmas tree? Is it okay to celebrate Halloween? I could see how some Christians would say, look, what nothing to do with it because of some of the occultic things that have been attached to it. Others go back further and say it was originally a Christian thing that got perverted, and we're not worshiping Satan here, we're just handing candy out to kids, you know? Um, so there can be differences of opinion. Let's let's look at what uh, Romans says about that. Look at Romans 14. Uh, if you want to do more biblical research on these principles we're talking about, in your uh, leisure time, look at Romans 14 and 15, and also 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where Paul talks about these things in some detail. But look at Romans 14, verse 1. Now, except the one who's weak in faith, weak and strong are Paul's terms. That's why I'm using them later. Except the one who's weak in faith. They have a shrunken conception of what they can do, a shrunken conception of Christian liberty. They think everything's black and white. Uh, but not for the purpose of looking down your nose at them. One person has faith. He may eat all things. He, he's read Acts 10, and God said uh, no more kosher regulations. Uh, you know, Peter, rise up and eat. But others think they can only eat vegetables only, like Nancy Postlewhite, who's a uh, vegetarian. But she doesn't do that for uh, theological reasons. She does it for health reasons. And it's a healthy way to live. But we're talking here in a uh, kosher uh, religious context, not uh, somebody who just has decided that's the best way to live, and it probably is. Uh, the one who eats meat, uh, including ham sandwiches or catfish and stuff that's on the don't list according to the Old Testament law, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who eats, who's actually got a stronger faith, who realizes he's got freedom to do that and enjoys that, is not to look down his nose at the weaker Christian. They're just based, living based on what they know and trying to live out their convictions. And it works the other way too. The one who does not eat, who's convinced they shouldn't, should understand Christian liberty enough not to judge the one who does eat for God's accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? You shouldn't be second-guessing other people's calls within the frame of clear teaching of Scripture as we make our judgment calls. Uh, we both stand before the Lord. Um, then he goes and said, that's that. Okay, let's stop there. Now drop down to verse 14. My problem is I'm going to want to go four hours, and I've only got about 20 more minutes, so just so you'll know. All right. Uh, now, talking about within the frame of clear moral teachings, Paul says in 14.14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Playing cards are not inherently evil. Movies are not inherently evil. A medium is not inherently evil. Television sets are not inherently evil. It's the message. Some, some of the messages are evil. I wouldn't go to R-rated movies. I think the, uh, the only R-rated movie I've gone to was The Passion of the Christ. Okay? Kind of hard to say you shouldn't go see that since this is biblical. You know, there's probably Schindler's List I was told to go see. I never saw it. Nacho Libre is kind of on the borderline there, James. It's PG-13. He's insisting I watch that. I'm resisting temptation. But anyway, uh, nothing. The media is not dirty. None of the notes are evil. There aren't evil notes. There aren't evil beats. Okay, they're just, they're just things, you know. Um, Nothing inclines itself, but to whom, but to him, the believer who thinks is unclean, then don't do it. If it violates your conscience, don't do it. So recognize the difference between direct command and areas of spiritual freedom. Number two, A and B. 
Uh, in areas of freedom within the frame of Scripture, look at 14.5. Uh, each believer is responsible to hammer out his or her own personal convictions. So for teenagers living under the home, you need to live out your parents' convictions because you're still living with the training wheels of they're paying your room and board, and you got to respect those those inputs until you grow up and get out of the house. In areas of freedom, each believer is supposed to hammer out his own convictions, and the flip side of that is to allow other believers to do the same, even though many of their convictions will be different than yours. Romans 14.5. What does it say? If I can find it real quick. Is that before or after 1 Corinthians? Okay. Oh, yeah. 14.5. One person, one Christian regards one day above another. Maybe somebody as a, as a Jewish believer now is still celebrating Passover or Yom Kippur or Arbor Day. You know, her birthdays, or there were Christians debating about that. All the days should be the same, or let's focus on the resurrection. One person regards one day above the other. Another, within the frame of Scripture, sees them all alike, doesn't have birthdays, Halloween, or uh, celebrate uh, Yom Kippur from a Jew- Jewish-Christian perspective. Each person should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let me give you an example. Uh, maybe I'm hyper-picky on this, but uh, a long time ago there was a show called M.A.S.H., Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. It was a comedy uh, based on a movie. And I like military comedies. Not that there's that much fun in the military quite often. But after I watched a couple of episodes of MASH, the TV show, I stopped watching it. Because in my opinion, I saw it as kind of had anti-Christian overtones, anti-war overtones. Like there's never just war. It's always us. We're the bad guys. Like the North Koreans, if you can't see the North Koreans and the Chinese and that conflict is bad, you better clean your glasses off. That's just me. So anyway, this thing was on television for how many years? 700 years or something. Uh, and now it's in reruns and then, you know, it's for you guys, you haven't heard of it, but it's kind of died a peaceful death. But I just, I had no heart, no stomach to watch the TV mash, show mash when I would watch parts of it just accidentally. I, I didn't like it. Uh, and that was my personal conviction. Uh, in Shreveport, my best friend, my best friend who was in the pastorate was a guy named Chris Dolson, DTS graduate. He pastored Shreveport Bible Church. We actually did a radio show live, taking questions on Sunday afternoons. Is that simple? Have a live TV radio show on Sunday afternoon called Bible Feedback. I came up with the name. Uh, we had no screener. We were answering live calls, and you get some bizarro calls. The, the good news is there's only like seven people listening to that radio station, so it didn't matter. I mean, it's really, I'm serious. But uh, when, when I got to know him, just in informal conversation, he told me, uh, he was telling, about, telling me about his favorite TV show. Guess, guess what his favorite TV show was? MASH. Now, did I feel like I had to sit him down and communicate why he shouldn't like MASH? I thought, you know, he's he's not picking up the overtones I am. He's just enjoying the comedy. And you know what? I didn't feel like I had to sit him down and beat him up spiritually for not having all the wonderful insights and all the nuances I was picking up. Maybe I was too picky. But the but we never talked about it. I didn't feel like I had to. He hammered out his convictions. He was good with it. There's no verse that says, Thou shalt watch MASH or Thou shalt not watch the TV show MASH. You've got to apply general principles to specific situations. And I've done that. And that's an example. So recognize there are differences between absolute principles within the frame uh uh, you've got some, uh, they're outside the frame, but inside the frame you've got a lot of freedom to make choices. Uh, prayer. Should Christians pray? 
pray without ceasing. Most of us would say it's important to have some daily concerted time of prayer. David Brainerd, missionary to the Indians, got up at four in the morning and would pray for two hours in Massachusetts. And when he would finish after two hours, he would be sweating because he was praying so fervently. But what they don't tell you is David Brainerd died of exposure at age 28, praying in the snow. I mean, he did that. So it's true. Look it up. So, uh, you know, is it more spiritual? Should David Brainerd be praying in the snow at 4 o'clock in the morning? That was his conviction. I think he probably should put more clothes on, but I mean, you know, uh, that was his conviction. Is that a bad thing? No. Wonderful. Uh, I have, I'm just telling you, I don't feel led to wake up 4 in the morning and pray. I'm sorry. I'm just not that spiritual. So, is there a verse that says when you gotta pray? David Brainerd felt led to do it at 4? Do it at 4. If you feel like doing it, you know, at a more convenient time, like 11.45 a.m., after you wake up, that's when you should do it, you know, when you can concentrate. Uh, the third principle is limit, uh, we need to limit our spiritual liberty when necessary and or expedient out of love. And that's what Paul and Timothy are doing here. You know what? They know you're half Jewish, and they're going to see you at the men's bath, and all the Jewish guys are going to be totally grossed out if you haven't identified with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So just get it over with, and it's going to be an unnecessary obstacle, if I can say that word, under pressure, to the gospel. Now watch this. Those are the principles. You get those? Here's the frame of moral teaching, murder, theft, lying, cheating, being intoxicated with drugs or alcohol. That's outside the frame. But inside the frame, pray. Jack can pray at a certain time, and I can pray at a certain time, and David Brainerd prayed at four in the morning. So God bless him for that. That's that's the deal. That's Christian liberty. Now, within that area, there are three different types of believers. There are strong believers, weak believers, and legalistic believers. Strong believers, uh, Romans 4.1, understands this principle, understand and enjoy Christian liberty, and yet they're not surprised or offended when other Christians have different convictions than they do. Uh, to tell you the truth, I was a little, I was a little surprised when Chris Dolson, who's a Dallas seminary grad, was watching MASH. I thought he was smart enough not to do stuff like that. But the more I think about it, he's processing at a different level than I was, so that's okay. Uh, strong believers are not arrogant about the fact they understand Christian liberty better than possibly some other believers. Uh, and so they're not surprised when other believers don't understand their legitimate expressions of Christian liberty. Okay? Oh my gosh, you cut your grass on Sunday afternoons. Don't you know that's a sin? You're not supposed to violate the Sabbath? Well, technically the Sabbath was Saturday, and that's been superseded by Christ's end of the law for all who believe, but um, people don't know that. So that's a strong believer. The weak believer, how dare you call them weak believers, Brad? That's the term Paul uses, so we're going to use it. Weak believers don't understand their or other people's Christian liberty. They tend to think uh, everything's black and white. So they're surprised and offended when other believers have convictions different than theirs in some of these areas, like cutting the grass, uh, observing Halloween, or whatever it is, these areas that aren't directly touched by Scripture. Uh, but here's the problem. The weak believer is not just surprised by the other person's spiritual liberty. They can be uh, influenced to violate their conviction they still hold because they see Derek doing something. Derek is a strong believer, and he cuts his grass on Sunday, so they had a busy week uh, for a couple of weeks, haven't cut their grass, they're going to go out of town on a business trip Monday, so this afternoon they think, man, it's a bad testimony for my grass to be this high, 
But I was always told it was a sin, and I still think it's something I shouldn't do under the Lord. But Derek does it, and Brad does it, so I'll do it. But you know, they just get a catch in their conscience. You know what? You got to follow your conscience in those areas. And so, a weak believer can be influenced to violate their own conscience. That's called causing another to stumble. That's why we might want to limit things like that when, when, and how we do stuff to not encourage people to violate their own conscience. What that person needs to do is learn more about spiritual liberty and then hammer out their convictions. If they still don't want to cut the grass on Sunday, that's cool. But they shouldn't question the person that does. Legalistic believers are like the, the guys that wanted to circumcise all the Gentiles where they could be saved. Expect everybody to embrace all of their own, the legalistic person's convictions. They don't understand the principles of spiritual liberty. They believe every issue is black and white, absolutely right or wrong. They're offended by other believers who have different convictions than they do in any area, theologically or practically. Um, in contrast to weak believers, the legalistic person isn't going to be tempted to violate their conscience. They're, they're going to do what their convictions are. What they are going to be tempted to do is to slander and question the sanctification or salvation of strong believers in areas where the strong believer sees more freedom than the legalist does. Okay, And so it's interesting that they end up violating direct commandments of Scripture about slandering and hating and bitterness and cliques and stuff based on their shrunken conception of what's going on. Now here's a chart that I'm not going to go all the way through it, but let's just, here's the, the stronger believers in the middle, weakers on the left, legalists is on the right. Let's look at just the last couple of descriptions. The stronger believer uh, is willing, happy to discuss the hows and whys of why he cuts the grass on Sunday, or has Christmas trees, or celebrates Halloween. Um, but somebody else's freedom to do different than he does doesn't make him mad, doesn't make him sin, doesn't make him question his convictions. And if, to the extent that you enjoy Christian liberty around this guy, you can't give him offense. You're not going to hurt his feelings. You can really enjoy your Christian liberty around this guy. The weaker believer um, doesn't know how to describe why he doesn't cut the grass on Sunday, except a preacher told him. That's not a good enough reason. As a preacher, Clay, nor the preacher in town will tell you this. As a preacher, saying, why do you do this? Why do you believe this? Well, the preacher said it. That's not a good enough reason. You ought to say, the scripture says it, that's a good reason. Saying Brad said it isn't a enough reason. Hopefully I'm saying what scripture says, I'm trying. But that's not a good enough reason. Uh, you know, you're in a college philosophy class, and they tell you, you know, that God doesn't exist, and you stand up and say, I don't believe that. And they say, why? Because my preacher believes in God. You know what? You need better reasons than that, okay? That's just me. So the weaker believer doesn't think he can teach anyone. He really hadn't thought through it. He's just trying to do the right thing. My freedom can cause him to sin. So i got to be careful with my displays of Christian liberty around weaker believers because they might be influenced to violate their own conscience. Okay, um, So I should avoid giving him offense. Now watch this. Here's the legalistic brother. Uh, they used to call this person the church lady. You guys know who the church lady is? You know, she wears combat boots to church and looks like she just got off the stagecoach. And there's nothing wrong with that look. In fact, I kind of like it myself. But uh, And that's Christian liberty. You can dress like that if you want to. But um, in modest, modesty, of course. But that may be more than you need. But this kind of person is really good at pointing out everybody else's sins, which is pretty funny when a lot of times the sins she identifies aren't even sins. But And her second-guessing people is a sin, but they do that. 
So the legalistic guy who thinks everything's black and white thinks it's his duty to straighten out everybody else all the time on sanctification, justification, theology, pragmatic issues, anything. They got all the answers because they read Calvin or they read some guy's theology books. They got all the answers based on whoever. Uh, my freedom will make him selfishly, self-righteously mad at me, but I can't let him limit the way I live my Christian life. There may be some specific instances I'll, I'll do it, just not to have to get in an argument in front of a bunch of unbelievers at Cameron, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we were all on the same page. Uh, I won't be able to avoid giving, having him take offense at my Christian liberty, but I should not allow him to enslave me by his legalism. Okay, well, so let's close like this. Uh, spiritual liberty. Within the frame of the clear teachings of Scripture, all the things we're supposed to not do are in at issue. We're not saying, saying you have the liberty to rob a bank or to fornicate or cheat, steal, not pay your taxes, not obey the law, not obey the speed limit. We're not saying that. Within the frame of the clear teachings of Scripture, Mary, you've got a right to paint God a picture of your life, and you're going to make choices about all these non-specific uh, biblical things about what holidays you celebrate and all that list of things and do's and don'ts. So let's love our spiritual liberty, but at times, like uh, any mature Christian should do, we need to limit it, okay? So let me finish this way. We're to love all believers of all colors, countries, and cultures, of all denominations. Uh, and in the area of Christian liberty, we ought to love legalistic believers and strong believers and weak believers. We ought to love them all. Agape love. Seek their highest good. However, strong believers, and hopefully the leaders in your churches out there uh, are strong believers who understand these principles, cannot allow themselves or their churches to be controlled by legalistic thinking. Okay? Uh, and let me just say this, as the pastor of TBF for, you know, the last couple of years, uh, and I always think fall break to me is our anniversary because the first time we visited Duncan and spoke at the church was fall break in 1988. And then we came uh, full-time in December of that year. So I always think of fall break and, you know, we, uh, there's only like, there was like one hotel in town, I'm exaggerating, Holiday Inn. So we got in, we found Duncan, uh, which wasn't easy. Uh, and, uh, we went to the Holiday Inn and then, uh, Lance and Mary Jo picked us up at Holiday Inn. And then we went to Vince Zeller's house and the elders and deacons met with us and we ate and then they kind of, uh, uh, grilled me for hours in the back room and beat me up a little bit. My wife dealt with the nice ladies and stuff and, Toward the end of that, of Saturday night, a fall break, uh, and you know the auditorium was the youth room and stuff. And uh, at the end of that, it's a couple hours of interaction. It was fine, of course. Um, they said, "Oh yeah, by the way, this is fall break, so half the church is out of town. <laughs> so when you speak tomorrow, don't you know, don't, don't let that bother you." I said, "Oh, you know, if I knew you want me to speak tomorrow, I would have prepared something." But you know, yeah. So I always think of this as my uh, anniversary. So I've, I've been here 27 years now. So as pastor here for 27 years. Uh, without meaning to be, I think most of us pastors are in charge of the complaint department, okay? Unless people are, if somebody's mad at me, they don't come to me. They go to somebody else. But if they're mad at anybody, they're mad at Homer, they're mad at Gene, you know who they talk to? Me! Because I'm in charge of the complaint department. And I always say, hey, you're talking to the wrong person. You're mad at Gene, tell her what kind of dumb thing she did this week, you know? Uh, because she needs to know, you know? But, uh, yes, yeah, the pastor, you know, slash head of the complaint department, uh, I can tell you, TBF can be easily misunderstood. I mean, we've had we've had, had some visitors over the years that kind of misinterpret, I think, Mel, 
our informality is irreverence. And that hurts me when people see it that way, but I can see how some people, based on their church background, could interpret us that way. We're too informal. We don't have pews, don't pass offering plates. Uh, Dale goofs around from the pulpit. I goof around from the pulpit. James is just goofy, so that's, you know, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, he is kind of goofy, but aren't we all? Um, so some people have seen that, and I hate it when they see that, but I don't think that's, I don't think they're interpreting it correctly. That's my opinion. Uh, some people come and they like verse by verse Bible teaching, so that's great, but they're convinced that drums, tambourines, and ukuleles, and we didn't break out the tambourines or the ukuleles this week, but, or the drums, really, but, uh, they're convinced that's of the devil because somebody told them. They went to a seminar, on, on four nights and then the whole weekend, and this guy who ends up hang, messing around with the girls in his ministry, so he's no longer in the ministry anymore, was telling them that music with a beat is evil and drums are evil. So, you know, they know they're too spiritual to go to church that's got a drum kit, you know, once a week, once a month. So, you know, they like the Bible teaching, they don't like that, and they think I'm corrupt because I let James have drums up here, you know. Or, uh, some people will say, well, we can't go to TBF, we liked it, and the people are friendly, and we like Homer and Pam, but Brad doesn't wear a suit and tie on Wednesdays. So, 